Promise Note Promises Women in Motion When we talk about performance, we most often first conjure some singular body in motion and that body's consciousness of its movement. We see and are ourselves conscious of some skin, some limbs, some style, some blur of movement, at once artificial and authentic, of performance and performativity itself. But bodies performing are not bodies alone. For who do they perform for and who with? The fourth Master Symposium in the series Women in the Arts and Leadership on October 7th and 8th, 2020 at the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel was dedicated to ideas and iterations of performance and to the way in which its embodied practices, its bodies, are often framed or received by narrow notions, not only of gender, race, class, geography, technology and temporality, but of what performance itself means and entails. A body in motion, for example. Whose body, though? And what kind of movement? Movement, indeed, is always both, suggesting something singular, a body in tender, private effort, and something collective. Presence, proximity, voice, movement, and performative relations are the tools by which many contemporary artists in unprecedented ways continue to explore how to create equitable space for our ever-regulated, duly delimited bodies. This symposium serves those practices, examining how performances has become the means by which so many artists and thinkers reflect on and denounce political systems that foster inequity, violence and binary relations at their core. Our various guests made explicit this set of relations. Between singularity and collectivity, authenticity and performativity, a language of narrativity, both visual and linguistic, movement both, physical and intellectual, the complicated desire to perform for others and with others, and to read such performances correctly, was a recurring idea and impulse of the Women in Motion Symposium as it continued with performances, conversations, screenings and readings by artists, thinkers, poets, filmmakers, composers and teachers. Performers all including Kat Anderson, Julieta Aranda, Barbara Casavecchia, Mayra Rodriguez-Castro, Pande Jing, Dorota Gaveda and Egle Kulpokaite, Ingela Iermann, Pauline Curnier-Jardin, Banu Kapil, Lynn Kwasi, Isabel Lewis, Tessa Mars, Sonia Fernandez-Pan, Sadie Plant and Martina-Sophie Wildberger. Dreamers, featuring Lynn Kwasi. 
so I thought maybe, I mean, we can begin in any way you like, but I thought maybe we would begin with the performance here that we sort of entered to. I think you sort of, in some ways, were the first person here, and you created this performance in the audience. Yes, yeah, so when I was invited, I think it was quite funny because my first thought was, oh, but I'm not a performer. But it's true, I do performances, but so far I've never performed myself. So what I do is I sometimes um, invite white female friends to perform for me, um, but more often I let the visitors perform actually, and this is what I did here as well. So the page you all found on the seat you chose is the performance and you did it together. What was your, I mean, what was your thinking, like, when you got the invitation and this was what you decided to do here? Were you thinking very much... I mean, it was interesting because in the last conversation, if we're thinking about the spaces that we're talking about, the last conversation was very situated in somehow in the theater, the library, the club, and the garden. And this seemed, like, very situated for the institution and um, for this kind of symposium, this kind of setup and the kind of bodies one expects or doesn't expect to be in it. So is, was this your sort of, was the performance made specifically for this? So I think important here is to say that I grew up in Zurich with my white mother. So my socialization is very white, basically, um, without any African community around me. Um, but nevertheless, I don't look white, so I have another experience than white people have. Um, and then I went to London to do my master, and there, it's really different compared to here. I mean, there we have so many black people, and I had suddenly so many black people around me, but not in my university, though. I still was the only one. <laughs> okay, no. Not the only person of color, but we had many Asians, for example. But I was the only black person in my studies, in my degree. Yeah, and there, I mean, I started to read about racism and so on. I had good conversations with friends in London, with teachers. Um, but I still didn't have the feeling that it concerned that it concerns me more than any other person on the planet. But then I came back to Switzerland, so I couldn't be in that London art bubble anymore. And I noticed how different it is in Switzerland, actually. And then I also I did a residency in a former monastery here in Dornach. And so I lived in this former monastery for a month. And uh, my project was that I was just there and was talking to people who were also there because the monastery is by now a hotel. Um, and yeah, there I just, like every day I had to face racism. And so that was the point where I decided, okay, I have to do something with this in my work, yeah. Also, like in the performance of today, I think you put the sign that this place, yeah, it still is reserved for the privileged white. And I wonder if you expect, I think of course you expect something from us to change that reality, but apart from it, um, to change it in an immediate uh, relation to what, I think I was reading it and I did not want to sit down. 
So, and I just wonder how, yeah, how are your different ways of engaging with it so that we engage with you in transforming this uh, because it's totally something that worries all of us and yet affects people in different ways and it's not always easy to do it in a way that is done collectively. That is, you know, I think you are not kind of pointing towards a struggle and yet it is. So I don't want to sit. I think if this place is only reserved for white people, it would be better not to sit. And yet we did sit because we are doing something else and then we need to overcome that message, uh, knowing that is, is kind of paradoxically partly true, but part of it is true. So I just wonder how you go wrong with that. I think we stand now at the point where we have to work on that everybody actually notices that it exists, that this um, building still is made for white people, by white people, and so on. Um, I think this is the first step to get rid of racism and sexism and everything bad in the world. We first have to notice that it's there. And we're, I mean, in the art bubble, we're quite aware. But as soon as you leave the art bubble, it's not that clear anymore, or not at all, actually. And also in the art bubble, still not that clear, I would say, No. quite often. It's really not that clear. Let's say it's not a stable clearness. It's yes, a, it has it's a discontinuous um, reality, and also um, it has a discontinuous way of, of having an action. And probably one of the most conflictive parts of it is that um, knowing and being aware is only partly enough. Uh, the other, for me, I'm talking personally, very important part is also erasing as much as we can do it. And I don't know if it's possible to do it in a way that we could erase radical, radically violence. And then if you do that, then the struggle still for many are still there. So how can you do it without violence? Is that at all possible? And then what does it mean? And what are the levels of discomfort? And how can we do it? Um, you know, it's impossible to do it without the pain. That's what I am trying to say uh, for so many. And, and that's why I think that artists play a crucial importance. And I think that these types of performances and gestures, and that's what I'm asking, because I think it's like rain. Like you create a work, but actually, you may create rain. It's not a drop. It's like part of something that, that so. totally yes. Yes. Uh, transforms the, the environment. Like it, it changed the climate, in other words. Mm -hmm. Yes, and before I also wanted to say it's also a lot about teamwork for me. It's not like I can just ask white people to change the world for me. This is part of it. <laughs> but I think it's not all. Because I also often see that black people don't really dare to enter white structures. And there it helps me that I was socialized white, basically, because I'm quite self-confident to um, move within white structures, because this is how I grew up, this is what I know. So I think, yeah, black people and POCs and indigenous people, like, they also have to, like, dare to just be here. And about violence, I mean, I think it's not possible without pain, but it could be possible without violence. Yeah, that's what I really yes. admire of your work, that you are Thank not you. proposing 
how difficult it is, you know, like for many, I can imagine some people looking at it or even seeing these things and thinking that's soft. And then I see in that softness an incredible potential because it's how it's enact, how it really kind of alters little by little, but not only, it's not, all about, it's not about accumulation. It's, it's about that, how can I say, it's about changing the very substance in ways that produce a different communicability of the possibilities that we have ahead of us. And that's um, something that needs to be done in a very cautious way. And I think that you are kind of taking care of that moment in a really intelligent way, like just taking care of exactly that encounter, which is really difficult. And on the other hand, as you said, you still want to keep a moment of comfort yeah. in it. During that residency in Dornock, did you end up um, making a kind of performance or a body of work or some sort of presentation? Or did you let yourself just stay in that space for the month and sort of also like deal with, the, as you said, the racism that you were encountering and kind of processing that? That's actually part of the work that came out after the um, residency. Yeah, the exhibition, it was a solo show in the monastery one year after, or like almost one and a half years after the residency I did there. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, I organized like three days with program, like this was one part of it. I invited other artists. Um, I also organized the anti-racism workshop by Blash, a network mm -hmm. of black tinf. Um, Can you explain a little bit what you did in that? I'm very curious about the workshop in itself. Well, I was just like somebody who listened there. Um, so I didn't give the workshop. Um, it were two women who did the workshop. Actually, I don't really remember that one. I did a workshop before that also by Blash. Um, at Helm House one year before that. And there I thought it was quite interesting because we also split into smaller groups, like four people per group. And they gave us a certain situation. I think it was a white patient. and No, two white pat patients in a hospital room, a black nurse, and some fourth, I don't know what the fourth was. But the situation that we had to act was that one patient didn't want to get injected by the black nurse. And she, oh yeah, I know who the fourth person was, a white uh, physician. So, and the patient who should get the injection wanted to, yeah, get the injection by the white physician, but not the black nurse. And we had to, enact this and look for possible solutions for this situation. For example, the second patient could interact or how should the white physician interact with that patient who is racist? What should the black nurse do? What would be good options to handle this situation? And then as soon as everybody enacted these and discussed the situation in the smaller groups, we came together and discussed it in the big group. And what do you thought about the workshop? I actually quite liked it. Because I think it was 
very useful to see how people would react and then in the same moment you can see in their faces, oops, I shouldn't have said that, oh, okay, how can I do it better? So you need to have a certain openness um, and also be ready to, yeah. I mean, the thing that I say, if you handle racism, you will hurt other people and you will be hurt. There is no way around it. So if you go to such a workshop, you will hurt other people and you will be hurt. So, but this is quite useful, I think, if you can handle that, because then you can start talking about it. This is, what I think, what I wanted to ask about this, in, this interest between like making a space, like you said, the, the floor of the Helm House, to make it more comfortable somehow, to, to like break this like very like almost violent whiteness of these cubes. Um, and then the idea of discomfort, and I was struck by some of the works that we're seeing here, and then this work, which is predicated on the chair, which holds the body, you know, and so the chair that can hold the body, the chair that can't, the floor that the body can walk over, the floor that it can't, and so are these two kind of modalities or things that you think about in your practice between, between creating comfort and creating discomfort, and like, what is the kind of tension between them? You know, in a weird way, it seems like you're kind of creating spaces in which the audience's body walks through, and the audience becomes your performer. You know, and you're trying to like kind of shift their equilibrium a little bit, shift their balance, shift their sensitivity. Right now, when you said that, yeah. I had to think of a psychotherapy sessions because <laughs> yeah, it's actually similar because you, if you go there, you talk about difficult stuff. Yeah painful stuff, but therefore it's so important that you feel comfortable in that space because otherwise you will never open up yeah. and talk about these things. Yeah. So it, yeah, it needs yeah. to be both. Yeah. Also it wouldn't be useful if you just feel comfortable there and never talk about painful stuff that then, yeah, yeah. you won't develop. And the therapy is also to go back to the sort of the, the form of the chair, you're also sitting, True. you know, like your body is in, a, in, a, is, in a, is in repose, basically, while it's gripping with this. Yeah, actually, like, I'm not really interested in walls. I don't know, like, they don't seem to me important, actually. Mm -hmm. I think the, the floor and everything that supports us is much more important. Mm -hmm. we, we couldn't survive without, but we can survive without walls actually mm -hmm. I think I think yeah um, in this conversation I also thought about like does everybody has to do everything like does everybody has to play every role? Maybe some people are just here to dream. <laughs> Maybe others are here to, to do. Um, and for me, as the term activism has in it, active. Um, yeah, in a way, it's more about doing then. Mm -hmm. And um, a political practice it, as an artist is maybe more about thinking for me in a way um, or like being interested in politics and 
maybe it's also more about asking questions and activism is more about offering answers, probably. I started working in art in the Barcelona's art context. So the painting is extremely projected. Painting was lying, was not a thing, a part of the art conversation. And I was thinking how political could be just painting there, that painting is not political in many other contexts. And it is dissidence, maybe. Or I was thinking, I'm thinking how there is not a political essence in anything because it's contextual yes. and depending, you know, many things that are very soft in some. So how difficult is, no, because in Barcelona's art context, many political art is based on political contents, but when it becomes, it's like a concept, no, appears and gets this strength and it becomes strong, but through repetition loses the meaning. No, so how, I don't know, how immediately things do this movement or... Sonia is referring to the fact that at a certain point, actually, the city of Barcelona through institutions embody what many people are reclaiming for a good reason, which is the acting in activism through the institution. So the institution was hosting activist activities and was also promoting it to the point that at a certain level, it was impossible um, to be plural or to accept or to embrace or to care about any other form that the language that this ideological activism was enacting. And it was enacted not only on the street, but it was institutionally enacted, which is what many people would like, that the museums, and I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that it ran through the body of the museum, um, also to discover that it needed to, to open up and, and, and be less violent and be such a really also from its institutional point of view, um, soften in a way. And that's why she says that the painters were excluded. It means not only the media, but also what were excluded were generations of people that were, as Lynn is saying, were dreamers and they wanted to participate and they wanted to be there, but uh, it was an incredible polarization of the behavior and the question of that certain behaviors were automatically not identified as political, like kind of denying what Sonia is saying, which is the political is not, a, is not an essential trait. It's something that you acquire through um, a relational um, dynamic. And if this relational dynamic uh, stops, even if it names itself as active, politically speaking, it may also be complete stagnation and really radically exclusive and, and, and denying access to, to many. But it was an incredible experiment and I was very happy to be part of it, but it probably shaped all of us, like Sonia and myself, because we were like uh, both uh, makers and victims of uh, a situation that uh, to a point was extremely radical. And so many times you wish it would happen here because at the end it was an exercise. But I must say as well that what came out of the museum after that exercise was not necessarily good. I think um, the body was not ready to actually understand its possibilities after that revolution, so to say. I'm thinking just maybe, and I will like the nail polish, no? I was extremely misogynist in the way that to have a space, I was among men, 
my friends were male during the university. I embraced rationality, not feelings, not talking about that and this. And depending when you are, wearing nail polish can be extremely radical. And in other circles, no, there are not this, this femme phobia within certain contexts of feminism or not. So no, I was thinking, no, how the list I was rejecting for many years, depending which which I am, can be radical because it's not accepted. And um, yeah, this. But it goes back also to what Lynn was saying. Not everyone needs to embody the same role. The roles, I think, exactly biodiversity uh, is what what's needed. And and even in in the embrace, not let's say not embracement, but in the permission of the vicinity of opinions that are definitely not what we share. And still, um, it's it's important to keep nearness to everything so that you can organically rearticulate the coexistence and readjust the positive and negative dynamics and, and yeah, the potential or the faith into the present instead of disciplinary projecting everything into the future and just denying everything that's happening now because you are also kind of radically projecting it and making everyone um, acting in a disciplinary space. And, um, and yeah, that's, um, that's a really important conversation that I must say, it did not actually took place, I think. Um, and it's kind of taking place now in a way, but I must say that we kind of still are unable to talk so many times about also how much discipline um, coercise or makes impossible that faith into the present because then you start adapting or you are a self-fulfilling prophecy of what you should represent in the public instead of actually being able to make mistakes or just, as Ling was saying, dreaming, So, which is also a space. It's also, um, you know, it's, it's an action. It's only that it's an action. And you understand how radical it is when you go to spaces where this is absolutely not allowed. I remember being in a workshop, in a, in a workshop about leadership, and an artist was there, and then she starts just saying, well, but I, I was daydreaming, I did not listen. So all the time was about her not being present, and everyone started being super aggressive, and I thought this is one of the most radical acts of dissidence that I've been uh, witness, and it was, I would say not totally unintended because her body was reacting like that, otherwise it was impossible to sustain the situation. But that's exactly how this is a retrain because I'm sure that everyone present in that room was like rehearsing that experience for a couple of months, if not for years, that they felt offended, but they couldn't forget. And it comes to the idea that actually memory is, a, it's let's say it's a substance where the transmission happens, but also where the transformation is possible. So the moment, the memory of that act is kind of its reenactment. So it has a performatic force. And uh, it's not in the actualization, but it's, uh, it's in permanence um, in the mind. So in the dream. So you kind of, memory is dreaming as well. And um, I think we have to sort of slowly wrap it up. But before we do, I just wanted to ask, 
about like your future projects or works you're working on right now. I mean, it was interesting because as you, you sort of started out saying, oh, I'm not really a performance artist. And yet, obviously, there's like a performative element in all the work we've seen here. And I'm wondering if you're thinking about for like the projects going forward, this idea of like the choreography, the, the kind of performance as critique, like what it is exactly you're moving towards right now, what you're thinking about. Um, it's always hard to tell because I always work on so many different things and most of them don't turn out as a work in the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, the style I practice is like I just live. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically my artistic practice in like the basic ingredient. Um, so I started to read a lot. I read a lot about animals at the moment. I'm actually buying three snails, three African snails. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yes, and I'm also like, there is a wonderful book. It's called Das Buch vom Schleim. Uh, what is Schleim in English? Slime. Slime. Yeah, the it's book just of slime. slime. It's yeah, slime. It's actually, yeah. currently I'm reading this book. It's really nice. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this is where I work That's at where the you're at the moment. So slowly <laughs> sliming along. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Super. On that note, we close, but it has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm going to do a um, short introduction um, to a text by Banu Kapil a British artist and performer and poet who could not travel to be with us here today, um, as so many could not. But she sent us a new text specifically for the symposium. And I'm going to come up here and talk about it a bit. Um, just to mention that Banu Kapil asked that we actually affix the, her text to the walls of the Art Institute's bathroom. And this is actually where she would like you to experience it. So. It seems strange to begin a symposium that is ostensibly about performance by talking about shame. Why, though? It is shameful to talk about, to write about, to acknowledge shame. But it is almost impossible to talk about performance without shame sneaking into your mouth, into your lines, into your body. Performance and shame begin in the body, but they do not end there. I think back to some lines by the queer American poet Thomas James. He once wrote, for our own private reasons, we live in each other for an hour. Stranger, I take your body and its seasons, aware the moon has gone a little sour for us. The moon hangs up there like a stone, shaken out of its proper setting. I read this stanza to myself in some early season of the 2000s, let his glittery lines cross the room of my mind, slam up against its pale walls, delineate its structure. I imagine a loose moon, that cheap jewel, and its forgotten silver setting on its own, alone, looping across some sky outside, a poor constellation that turns your finger blue. There are different ways to live in another body for an hour. There's the obvious, the erotic intimacy that James is referring to, and the less obvious, performance. Performance, as we all know here, is a bodily practice that produces meaning. But language is also embodied. 
the performance of language, the voice, is an everyday enactment that is often cast inaccurately as natural, inevitable, and unrehearsed. We know that this is not the case, though, just as it is not the case with nearly everything that we are encouraged to become naturalized to, that we are told again and again is natural. Yet spoken language, natural, unnatural, ever restless, can lead us in many directions at once, solidarity, shame, vulnerability. Indeed, the vulnerability of such language acts, the call and response of language itself, in which a speaker is almost always met with a receiver, does not always result in solidarity. In the poet Claudia Rankine's book, Citizen, she writes in the second person and thus addresses herself as follows, quote, not long ago, you are in a room where someone asked the philosopher Judith Butler what makes language hurtful. You can feel everyone lean in. Our very being exposes us to the address of another, she answers. We suffer from the condition of being addressable. Our emotional openness, she adds, is carried by our addressability. Language navigates this. Thus, what makes language beautiful can also make it hurtful that we remain exposed to others when they address us, when they speak to us, as I now speak to you. To be addressed makes one vulnerable because it calls for openness. In Butler's book, Precarious Life, she notes that we are all addressed before we are able to speak ourselves. It is only through being spoken to that we acquire the ability to address others. Language depends on us being available to others but it does not predict how they will treat us, how they will speak to us. As Emmanuel Levinas once wrote, the subject who speaks is situated in relation to the other. This privilege of the other ceases to be incomprehensible once we admit that the first act of existence is neither being in itself, not being for itself, but being for the other. In other words, that human existence is a creature. By offering a word, the subject putting himself forward lays himself open and, in a sense, prays. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, and Institut du Souche a joint venture with Krajina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch, that's dertank.ch, or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch, that's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut du Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found on museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Research assistant Alice Wilke. 
Editing and Voiceover Elena Ziesel. Music Niklas Kammermeier. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Konrad Siegel, Christina Pavlovich, Vitals Brun, Chris Handberg, Steven Schoch und Esther Hunziger. Copyright bei Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW und Institut du Souche, Art Stations Foundation CH 2021.